we're going to have the rest of our main uh, reading now. So picking up Isaiah uh, 44 on page now 604 of the Church Bibles. I'll read Isaiah 44 and 45. Isaiah 44 verse 1 says this. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. <coughs> Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jerusalem, Jerusalem whom I've chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass, like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me is that there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol, that is profit profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it go strong among the tree of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge of discernment, to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, the deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? 
Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, you Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and make fools of diviners, who turn wise men back and make their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who say to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundations shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am a Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout, I the Lord have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your works has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labour? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed it, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the works of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel the Saviour. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. And you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, 
he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God beside me? A righteous God and a saviour there is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. For myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength, to him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be having a look at at least uh, some of it in the next few minutes. Just to say there's an outline of where we're going and a service sheet, so do make use of that to study your thinking as we go through and follow the train of thought. And at the end of the uh, sermon, there will be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments about what we've um, said. But before we go any further, let's ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the uncreated creator and that you are the Lord God and there is no other. And we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and rightly sovereign over your creation. And so we pray as we've gathered this morning uh, to uh, sit under your word that we would vindicate your character in our response to the words that you speak to us, that you'd help us to listen to trust and to be obedient to you. And we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. What do you think about the idea of simplifying the teaching at Trinity? Specifically, to simplify the teaching to the point where what we teach at Trinity is simply that Jesus is the King. Now, I know some of you will object, and I'm not saying that you can't go deeper if you want to, but rather, can we just agree on a base level, Jesus is the king, and it becomes optional if you want to know more. After all, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the king. In Mark chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the king. Affirming that Jesus is the king is what the Bible teaches. Moreover, might simplifying the teaching to Jesus as the king 
make Trinity more accessible for everyone. You know, we don't want to be just a church for the academic. We don't want to just cater for the people who seem to like overcomplicating things and being overly logical. Simply affirming that Jesus is the King means that everybody who comes to Trinity can understand the teaching. And might such a simplification help us to stay focused on what really matters? I mean, Peter's confession that Jesus is the King is a huge turning point in the Gospels as he grasps Jesus' true identity. It's not to say that we can't learn more about Jesus if we're keen, but the thing that really matters is that we confess him as our king. Simplifying the teaching to Jesus is the king will help us to stay focused on what really matters. Well, we would obviously want to agree with the statement that Jesus is the king. But then we'd also have to notice that people could and have agreed with it who aren't orthodox Christians. So, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus is the Christ, but they would deny he's the eternal son of the Father. And actually, even though some may champion that the Apostle Peter for some people may champion the Apostle Peter for affirming that Jesus is the Christ. When you read on, you only find that four verses later in Mark's Gospel, Peter receives the sharpest rebuke from Jesus of get behind me, Satan. Although Peter affirms that Jesus is the Christ, he has in mind a Christ, one that's very different to whom Jesus actually is. Now, what we're observing is this. It's what you might call the Titanic iceberg syndrome. So you have Jesus is the king. That is explicit. But actually, this is an iceberg. And some of the important things about what it means for Jesus to be king are implicit. They appear beneath the surface. For what we believe about the king from the Bible is that the king suffers. The king is the son of man and he is the son of God. Furthermore, we're talking about a particular kind of kingdom. Now, when you think about such passages such as Daniel chapter 7, a kingdom that has no end, a kingdom that is given to him by the Father. All of these are a part of our understanding of what it means to be for Jesus to be the king. But they aren't necessarily there with the bare words. Jesus is the king. And actually what we think is important is quite often that which is implicit. A good rule of thumb is to make explicit that which is implicit. So that when we say Jesus is the king, the kind of question that we then want to ask is, what kind of king? You know, the king means this, this, and this, not this. Now, if we were to refuse to do that and simply stick with Jesus as the king, the risk is that our understanding of his kingship starts to become invisible. 
our knowledge Jesus becomes like the Titanic iceberg, with most of our understanding beneath the surface, where it will remain unchallenged by the Bible. For that reason, we're wanting to make explicit what is implicit. We want to make sure that our understanding of who Jesus is is visible to the scrutiny of the Bible, so that our thinking about him may be conformed to him as he truly is. In our passage this morning, reference is made to the servant of the Lord. The first such reference is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. You can see it there on page 602 of the Church Bibles. Let me read again Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who do you think this servant is? Well, you might think it's referring to Jesus, or at least the promise of the Messiah whom Jesus fulfills. And in chapter 42, verse 1, it looks very much that that is ultimately the case. This servant will establish God's rule over the whole world, which is exactly what we're expecting the Messiah to do. But then flick down, have a look at chapter 42, verse 19. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Now that doesn't sound much like the Messiah. That sounds like a description of the people of Israel. A people who were called to do the will of God, but who do the opposite. A people who are disobedient, who are a disobedient servant, deaf and blind to his word. So which is it? Is the servant of the Lord an individual or a people? Is it the Messiah or is it the nation Israel? Well, it depends. Sometimes the servant of the Lord refers to an individual and sometimes it refers to the people. Depends on the context. But why does Isaiah risk confusing the two? Why are they called the same thing? Well, it draws our attention to the relationship between the two. So if you were to turn back to me to uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah, and let's look again at Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 3, because these verses are something of the key verses of the whole book of Isaiah. So 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And there are two things to note here, the stump and the shoot. So there is the stump. The stump represents the people of Israel. 
And because of their unfaithfulness to God, God in his judgment will cut them back to a stump, a remnant. But then there's the shoot. From that stump, from that remnant of Israel, God will raise up an individual whom he will give his spirit. Isaiah is the book about the shoot from the stump, about an individual from a nation, about a true servant of the Lord from a people who failed to be the servant of the Lord. This individual then is going to be what the people should have been. And this individual becomes something of the focus in these middle chapters of Isaiah. He's introduced to us in chapter 42, verse 1, but appears again in chapters 49, again in chapter 50, and again in chapters 52 and 53. And these four passages are more commonly known as the servant songs. But before we leave the first servant song in chapter 42, notice that this servant will not establish God's rule in a way we might expect. Have a look again at chapter 42, verses 2 to 4. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, don't misunderstand these verses. This servant will establish God's rule over the nations of the world. It's just that he will do it in a way that we might not expect a king to establish his rule. His method to bring justice is unlike any other king. We're told that he will avoid the limelight. He will not establish his rule through military conquest or imperial power. He's so far from smashing the mighty that he will not even break off the reed that's bent over and cracked. Rather, through patient endurance, he will remain faithful to God's will for him until God's rule on the earth has been established. In this way, he is a true servant of the Lord. Now this description, of course, anticipates the kind of king that Jesus is, and of whom this scripture speaks. Jesus is insistent that the pattern of authority in his kingdom is not the earthly norm of exploitation. Instead, the pattern of authority in his kingdom is one of serving. And this is supremely demonstrated by the king himself, when in obedience to his father's will, he laid down his life for his people. Now this is crucial because one of the criticisms of authority today is that it's self-serving. And people sense that kind of authority does not have a leg legitimacy about it and often speaks of hypocrisy. And for this reason, people can just develop a general hostility towards any and all authority. However, in Jesus, we have a king who is genuinely selfless and seeks the good of his people. But at the same time, his selflessness 
doesn't undermine his kingship, for he is the true king. Well, at this point, we get to perhaps the most extraordinary verse in this whole section. It's Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loosen the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. If you recall, uh, Isaiah is envisaging a time when Israel will be held captive in Babylon. And Isaiah has been prophesying that God will raise up Cyrus to bring Israel out of exile to return back to Jerusalem. And that's actually what happened. The people were sent back to Jerusalem under Cyrus. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 1. This is what God is anticipating in this text. But what is extraordinary is that Cyrus will do it for God's people. What is so extraordinary is that it should be Cyrus who is called the Messiah. We don't get another Moses freeing the people from under the wicked Pharaoh, but it's a pagan who's delivering the people from a wicked king. He's a pagan, a cruel, barbaric man, as far as we know, who didn't know God and who, in verse 4, did not acknowledge God. He wouldn't have anything to do with God. Yet God appoints him for this very task and calls him the Messiah. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now you might be thinking, that doesn't sound like the Messiah to you. And that's because the Hebrew word is Messiah. So Messiah is not an English word. It's just an English version of the Hebrew word. So Messiah is a Hebrew word, and if you translate the Hebrew word Messiah, you get the English word anointed. And if you translate it into Greek, you get the Greek word Christos. So again, Christ is a translated, transliterated Greek word. And if you want to translate the Greek word Christ, you get the English word anointed. So we've got this group of words mean the same thing, Christ, Messiah, anointed. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew, anointed is English. Well, what does the word mean? Well, the concept of anointing someone is very much linked with the concept of appointing someone king. So in 1 Samuel 10, Saul was anointed king. In 1 Samuel 16, David was anointed king. 1 Kings 1, Solomon was anointed king. Anointed is a language in which you appoint a king. Today, I don't know, we might say you crown the king. But that said, I don't know if you watched King Charles III's coronation, where he was anointed with oil at his coronation earlier this year. So I don't think we saw it, it was behind a, a screen. But it, nevertheless, it was the way of appointing him as monarch. But why does God send a pagan messiah 
and not one from among his own people. Well, a number of reasons are given. Let's take a look. The first is there in chapter 45, verses 2 and 3. So God says to Cyrus, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by my name. God intends that Cyrus will recognise who it is that has commissioned him. This verse doesn't necessarily predict conversion, but it speaks of Cyrus knowing who had called him. The reasons go on. Verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by my name. I name you, though you do not know me. The second reason for God using and blessing Cyrus is for the sake of the Lord's elect, his chosen people. Cyrus's calling is in order that God may keep his saving promises to Israel. And the third reason in verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God's third reason for choosing and empowering Cyrus is that the whole world might know that the Lord is the only God. I don't know if you spotted it, but there's an obvious progression in the three reasons given. The first is that Cyrus might know that the Lord is God and there's no other. The second is that Israel might know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And the third is that the whole world might know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And sending a pagan messiah to his people makes just that point. God is the God of even the pagans. For he raises up Cyrus to do his work. God is the God not only of Israel, but the God of the whole world. And Cyrus actually achieved just this. For it's because of Cyrus that Israel survived, through whom the Christ would come. And one day, because of Cyrus, everyone will know that the Lord is God, and that there is no other. For one day every knee will bow to Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Well, we began by asking the question, is it enough to simply affirm that Jesus is the King? In today's passage, we've had cause to reflect on how Jesus does not establish his kingly rule in the way we might expect the king to establish his rule. But he will do it in obscurity and obedience to God's will as he lays down his life at the cross. We've also had cause to reflect on how Jesus' rule will not be restricted to his people, but that one day everyone will acknowledge that he is Lord. At this point, we might say, well, that's what I mean when I say that Jesus is the king. But these ideas aren't necessarily there with the bare words, Jesus is the king. 
The danger is if we only affirm Jesus is the king, it leaves others to imagine what kind of king he is. And we've no reason to assume that uh, we will come up with the same kind of king as the Bible teaches. So we need to be explicit as to what kind of king he is. And this is not just for our benefit, so that our understanding of Jesus is visible to the scrutiny of the Bible, but also for the benefit of others, that we would witness truthfully about the kind of king Jesus is. Well, let's pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the whole counsel of God that you have given to us, not least the book of Isaiah. And we thank you how that anticipates the coming of the one who will redeem your people. But it does so uh, by establishing a richness of the expectations of this one who will come. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to reflect on how the one will be one who is obedient to you. And in contrast to the disobedience of Israel, we're looking for someone who will be obedient to your will. And that will be the means by which his rule will be established. And we thank you too for this ever-growing picture of your sovereignty, not just over your people, but over the whole world. And how that anticipates that final point where not only will your son rule, but the whole world will know that you, the Lord, are God. We pray, please, uh, that we would be fulfill the role that you've given us in this final phase of redemptive history to witness to the world about your son and his enthronement. Please, would you help us as we get to know him better, that that would mean that we can be faithful witnesses to him, to the praise of your glory. Amen. Okay. And now, got any questions or comments about what we've covered? If you would like. Nathan. <coughs> Second, sorry, chapter forty four. Yes. Yes. Um, yes, if the recording, chapter 44, there's that section about the folly of idolatry and is quite humorous about the same tree that an idol is made out of. Um, 
is also used to cook his food. So you kind of think exposes the um, the folly of um, idols, which are created by us. Um, and just is it just a side thing with that? Remember, one of the things that we've been finding very helpful here at Trinity is just to go back a step that before the idol is fashioned out of wood, it's been imagined. So even if we don't make a physical representation of the God, we've already uh, created it in our mind. And so the same argument works. So basically, if we make up gods, they're not real gods. It's just, it's just our imagination. And therefore, they can't do anything. They can't speak here. And they can't redeem. So I suspect that what's going... Like I think there's been several points, isn't there, where you have this that's sort of dotted through. And in many ways, you could have a sermon on that itself just to explore this idea of idolatry. You know, because it's, it, that is the... Um, that is such a huge category in the Bible that there is the living God. If you remember, we say living God, not just to make him sound better than God. He's living as opposed to the made-up gods, which are no gods at all. They don't exist, that they're dead. But I take it that in the flow of the argument here is that when we look at what the purpose is, um, the why... So if, if we go back to uh, chapter 45 and the idea of why is he anoint, anointed Cyrus and there was this train of thought that not only he but Israel and the whole world would know that God is the Lord and there is no other. I take it therefore that the idolatry sets the, where the nations are at. That's the default of the people of Israel and the nations. So in other words... It's this whole idea is God is not prepared to be misrepresented. That is the problem of the world and it's folly. And he is going to act to establish that he is the Lord God and there is no other. So I think it, I think it, it probably is just continuing to take us back that actually there is a need um, for God. And I guess also like a legitimacy because actually these gods that have been made and created are robbing God, they're stealing from God that which is his. Because then if you also notice, reading through, um, I mean, it's, it's quite helpful, I think, to hear the spoken scripture. But there, if you notice, a number, number of times it, it talks about, um, let me see if I, can, I probably can't find one now, but he's the creator. Oh, here we go, like 42 verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread the earth and what comes from it. You never move away from that, and that refrain keeps coming in. And I guess it ultimately goes back to the uncreated creator, because it's his creation that establishes his legitimate rule over it. And that's actually where what redemption is going to re-establish. He's going to take back that which is his own and rule over it. Is that cool? Anybody else? Saying he will redeem and save Israel and his people, and then 
Yes. Yes, no, that's a fair observation. So just for recording, there seems to be points where, uh, so the end of chapter 43, where uh, 43 verse 27, 28, where it says, Your father first sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. So, yeah, you suppose you could be thinking, like, hang on, is he going to destroy them? Is he going to redeem them? So, what, and it, it's interesting if you in verse 44, but he says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I've chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you, fear not, for I will pour out my spirit. And so, as far as I've understood it from, uh, you know, from the commentator as well, is this idea that um, as well as we never move away from God as the creator, we also, Isaiah is not quick to move away from the sin of the people and that therefore um, there are people who are disobedient and therefore deserve judgment. Um, and so we're to understand or anticipate that his redemption will mean his receiving his mercy in terms of that's what it will take because they're not. Well, I guess you could put it another way. On what, and this is a massive question to ask in the Bible, on what basis will God act? And he's not going to act. Well, Israel are a disobedient people. We learned that from right this start of Isaiah. So he's not going to act um, simply because they've um, uh, he's not going to act just on the basis of, of who they are and what they've done because they're disobedient. And actually, it would be fitting for them to be destroyed. But at the same time, he has put his name on his people. He's made promises to his people. And therefore, his, name's, his, name, is at, his name is at stake because he's, he's made promises to his people. And therefore, he needs to act in order to fulfill his, his promises. Otherwise, actually, God's name will... Well, it's interesting. God's name is already being contested but it would be further contested if God then didn't actually keep the promises that he's made to his people. So I think it just continues just to build this impression that the people he's working with is a disobedient people, and therefore from them we're expecting 
true servant, and by that we mean someone who is obedient to God. And it's interesting because I think that's, again, when we think about the kingship of Jesus, what do we think about? He is an obedient king, which is a kind of a bit of a funny phrase because you kind of think, well, no, no, the whole point about a king is you don't have to obey anyone. You're the, you're the ruler. You do what I tell you to because I'm in charge. And it's not simply like, well, I mean, interesting today, I suppose, when we think about our king, Charles, he's obedient in terms of he's just one of us. So he's not above the rules. He's like, he has to sit below the rules. But here, what's anticipated is an obedient king. He's obedient first and foremost to the Lord God, to his father. So he's a servant first and foremost of God. And in serving the Lord God, he serves his people. Which I think is a very helpful thing, because I think sometimes when we talk about we have a servant king, we're to serve, that can just turn into a whole thing of like, you know, you tell me what, I'll do what you want me to do. That whole kind of idea of we just, we just please other people. But actually this whole idea of servanthood begins with obedience to God. And therefore I serve him first, but in serving the Lord God, or as in we serve the Lord God, that's the way we serve one another. It's in our obedience to him, we, are, we serve each other. So I think that's what that's getting at. And then also, we'll hear more about this, but that's why he's going to pour out his spirit, because his spirit will be the means of changing them from being a disobedient people to people who know his will and have hearts that love him. So I think that's, does that sort of help a bit? Yeah. Two longish ones, time for another quick one, or done. Go on, Ricky, quick one. Uh, one oh, good, that's even quicker. <laughs> um, is, how long the Yeah, yeah, very good. I just try and repeat that for the recording. If you're listening at home, if I just say like, oh yeah, I'll speak to Ricky. So I see if I can remember it. This idea is quite similar to what's happened in Egypt with uh, Pharaoh and the whole idea of that the purpose or the goal of their redemption isn't simply them so they could just do their own thing. The goal is that the whole world will know that the Lord, he is God. And so that kind of places our individual salvation in a, it's actually a God-centered scheme where actually the purpose is, is that we, we um, yeah, our goal is all tied up with the goal of the whole world knowing that he's God. Uh, yeah, on the recording, Ricky said it better than me, so speak to him. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing. Right, let's leave it there. We're going to sing, uh, choosing the next few songs. Uh, the first one is about this servanthood of our king. And then have a final reflection and then we'll sing again.